So welcome, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Passports and Poets, conversations about the power of place, the places that change us, and why it matters. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Chick Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Rodney Burzeal, the photographer photographer in chief. <laughs> yes, and we are extremely excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Ian Douglas Hamilton, who is internationally regarded zoologist, known for his work with elephants and for founding, among other things, the Save the Elephants and I believe it's an NGO, isn't it? We're a UK NGO, but uh, operationally we're in Kenya. Well, and you've been in Kenya and and Africa for a long time. You earned your bachelor's of science uh, in biology and then a doctor of philosophy in zoology from Oxford. And then at the age of 23, I loved reading all this about you and watching many of your videos, but at the age of 23... You moved to, was it Tanzania, and lived with elephants, and from then on, you never looked back. Before we dive into that, Rodney, why don't you say a word about how you know this fine gentleman? Well, it's, I, you know, I think everybody's heard of Save the Elephants. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah, I, you know, Kenya and Tanzania, East Africa, that's, that had been on my bucket list for years, and I finally got the opportunity to go in, uh, was it 19 or 20? I don't even remember. Everything's such a blur now with all <laughs> what we're going through. But I was on Safari Link flying up to Samburu. And I, it's, you know, it's one of these, I think it's a what, 16 person plane, you know, the, the rows of three. And I'm sitting in the back seat and everybody's on and I see, this gentleman get on the plane and he sits next on the other side, you know, on the same row as me. And I'm looking over and it, it, it's funny because Chick and I both were talking about this and we, it's, if you're not knighted yet, you need to be. <laughs> Cause, Cause we keep, we, we, we keep calling <laughs> you Sir Ian. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I saw you I hope and, okay. yeah, and I was like this, I, I feel like I need to know this guy. I don't, I knew nothing about you and didn't know who you were. And I just, but I, I didn't want to bother you guys. I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> and, but I, I just, you, you had this presence of being somebody that I, you know, I needed to talk to. And we got off the plane and I went over, I just, I guess, I don't know if I'd gone to the bathroom or what I had done, but I stepped away and I came back and my friends that I was with were talking to you. I was like, oh, perfect. So now, you know, the, the ice has been broken and I go over and I'm introduced and it's like, this is Ian Douglas Hamilton, the founder of Save the Elephants. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And, <laughs> and so, you went hum and hum and hum yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we, we chatted for, I don't know if you remember this or not, but yeah, we chatted for about 15 minutes and that was that. And I went back last August uh, in, you know, 21 and it was our last day in Kenya, we were in the Mara, and we were up at the Fairmont, and our flight had been canceled, and so they moved us to another airstrip, and we pull up, and there's the Save the Elephants plane. So I'm taking photos, getting photos with it, and just as our plane lands, this truck pulls up, and Ian steps out. It's like, 
that's Ian. <laughs> Sorry, Ian. So, and so both times I was there, I just randomly ran into you. And this time I, you know, I, I guess the first time I went, you know, I didn't have this podcast yet. And this time we did. And that was the other part that was funny was when our, they're yelling at me to come get on the plane because we're already late. And I'm just trying to get everything I can and, you know, talking to you. And I'm running back and my, you know, Rick, who's been on with us mm. before, He's like, well, did you ask him to be on your podcast? I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> so I run back and you know, I was like, hey, can I get your number? I want, I want you to be on my podcast. And so. So here we are. Here, here we are. <laughs> and we would, we, there's so many places to jump in. Um, I, I was, you had me, at, I lived in Tanzania with the elephants for <laughs> five yeah. years and raising, bringing, raising your family there. Um, the th one of the things that struck me was your whole orientation was to uh, study the elephants to understand their behaviors, their social patterns. Um, and could you just start with that, about how that was your entry point and what that was like for your first few years? Yeah, I kind of got into it almost uh, by an accident, but also by design. Because I was tasked with, I desperately wanted to work in Africa. I wanted to work all my life. And my first idea was to work with lions. But the director of Tanzania National Parks told me, no, we've got a guy called George Schaller coming to do that. So George, of course, is a preeminent scientist. He did a fantastic job. He said, but we've got a little population of elephants in a place called Lake Manyara. So maybe you could come there because we want a feeding behavior study made because the elephants are actually stripping the bark off the trees and the, it's particularly important these trees are climbed upon by lions so it was a huge tourist attraction for people to come and see the elephant the lion sitting up on the tree sprawled out on the branches anyway that's how i started and um from that feeling behavior, the very first time I went out with an old experienced uh, uh, introducer, um, who's a very experienced scientist called Desmond Foster Vesey Fitzgerald, an old timer. And um, I, he took me to see the elephants. And I thought, well, you know, they seem to be possible to get to know as individuals. And I was looking through my binoculars and saw that actually they had these distinctive patterns on their ears. And their tusks looked different. I thought, gosh, how interesting it would be to actually get to know them as individuals. And there were only about 500 elephants in that park. So I thought, well, I could probably just about manage to get to know most of them. And that's how I started. Because uh, one of the questions that you immediately have when you're looking at the impact of elephants on vegetation is, well, how many are there and are they increasing or decreasing? Do they go out of the park or do they stay here all the time? And I thought, well, if I can learn them as individuals and learn about their behavior, I'll be able to learn about their motivation. Why do they go here and there? And how long do they stay in places? So that was the best decision I ever made to get involved with their behavior. And I did meet the great George Shallot who then advised me, he said, well, look, it's very interesting what you're doing with the ecology, but, you know, you're going to make your name on knowing elephant behavior. So go out and do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took his advice and 
got deeply involved in looking at the social structure and who went around with who and how the mothers looked after their babies. And actually, one of the first things that became overpowering of this, that elephants were not, as has often been said, um, a family unit structure where the herd bull played a leading role. Not at all. It was the mothers who led and the females. And they had these very tight-knit bonds between them. They would stick with each other. They would take risks for each other. And very often, there was a matriarch who dominated. And I think that's when I first got my enormous respect for elephants, that Manyara, in those days, the elephants were quite wild. So when I encountered them, they quite often would charge me. And an elephant threat charge is not something to be taken lightly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> incredibly um, exciting. It's been evolved over millions of years of evolution to be absolutely terrifying. And that's what it is. You know, they, they can come at you and charge and shake their heads and trumpet and make the most astonishing repertoire of growls and roars. And uh, there this creature is with its ears wide spread open. There's the family behind. And so I thought, my God, I've got to be careful. And I was careful to begin with, but I got less careful as time went on. And I got to know them and I'd test to see how long it would take for them to run away. And then I realized that actually this female, given her history, was coming out to confront what she thought was a deadly enemy. And uh, what I noticed was that while the matriarch would come out, um, all the babies and the young would be escaping in the background. And that's when I really developed a new respect, that there's this intense love for uh, not only your offspring, but also your grandchildren and anybody who was in that family unit, and that you would risk your life for that. And so altruism in elephants towards each other became something I was really interested in. And, of course, I saw it time and again in that first study. And as when time went by, there were lots of mysteries that cropped up in elephant behavior. And it wasn't just why do they risk their lives, because that's quite easy to explain in evolutionary terms, that you're actually making the chances of survival of your own genes and your offspring and your grandchildren more likely if you risk your life. So it's worth risking your life in those terms. But um, I think what then became very interesting was that um, sometimes elephants will be sparked off by another elephant in distress to, to do something truly altruistic, to go and help someone in another family that you're not even related to. And that leaps forward, fast forward another 30, 40 years, and I'm now in Sambru, um, which is where we met, and uh, we have another bunch of known elephants that we now know even better than I knew those ones in Manyara, because I trained people, had wonderful people, young scientists who came at an early stage in their career from America, and um, who is still with us all these years later, and many young Sambrus, because that's the tribe that lives there, who are very interesting people, very colorful people. And they wanted to learn about the elephants too. 
So we now got a core of people who are really um, very keen on elephants, uh, but at a technical level and who can help gather new scientific information also to talk to other people, to talk to their fellow men and women and to talk internationally and to build up a, a sort of world core of elephant lovers because that actually ultimately is whether elephants are going to survive or not is going to depend on human beings. We are so much the dominant influence. When did you start to make the transition to um, looking at and developing technology um, to solve some of these mysteries? You you used to... quite, a, quite a way down. I mean, the technology to begin with was a pair of binoculars and a notebook and yeah. the ability to yeah. climb trees and look at elephants without being in danger. And then uh, over, over the years, um, I acquired an aeroplane, which gave me a completely new angle on looking at these herds of elephants that I cared about so much, but going to places where I couldn't normally reach them on foot. And then radio tracking came in. So we did the first ever radio tracking of elephants in 1969. And, um, and, and that was quite an insight that I had to drop that line of research because there was this new crisis that afflicted elephants, which was a rise in the price of ivory and a huge increase in the poaching of elephants for ivory. So that occupied most of the 70s and the 80s in my life and right up to the early 90s. And then I got back into research again. And now the technology has leaped forward. And instead of just having a radio bleeper that you followed from your airplane with a Yegi antenna, like a night fighter in the Second World War, you know, tracking down the, the radio sounds. Uh, we now had um, the GPS that came in. And the first time I saw a GPS, which was just around the time of the first Iraq war, I thought, my goodness, what about if we could take one of these gadgets and put it on an elephant and somehow download it? And it took another three or four years to get to that point. But we eventually developed a GPS radio that we could download from an airplane or download in line of sight. And uh, that was astonishing because now, instead of a radio tracking the old-fashioned way where you got one reading per elephant per flight, and maybe you had 20 elephants to get around, so if you're lucky, high-intensity monitoring was um, once per month per elephant. Now we were recording once per hour per elephant, all remotely done, in and out of daylight and nighttime, across international borders. It didn't matter, you know, if you could just get to that elephant, download it from an airplane. You know, there's an astonishing stream of data. And we've gone on on those lines. I mean, now it gets better and better, the technology. What do you, what do, you do with the data? What did you do originally and what do you do with it now? Sounds Originally, like a lot we, would, of data. we would make uh, look at the areas that elephants occupied, look at the, the distances over time. And um, as the technology got better, we, we were able to do that in much greater detail. So um, I was able to look at how an elephant went, how it went by night and day, when it traveled the most, how did it react when the poaching became really bad, 
uh, did it change its behavior? And we found it did. We found that um, in a protected area like Shambhu, the elephants would drink by day and they'd lounge around in the shade of the trees along the river and uh, take their time and really enjoy uh, drinking whenever they felt like. You went out 20 kilometers into the places where they're being poached, completely different behavior. Now they were drinking only at night and rushing into the river, drinking and getting out because the river was a dangerous place. The poachers knew they could ambush them there. So the elephant behavior adapted, and I think that's been the enduring interest is to see how they adapt their behavior and um, also how the young learn from the mothers. It, it is amazing how attuned they are, you know, to these, to the areas and where, where they know they're safe and where they know it's dangerous. And, you know, it's like even, even these reports and how, how true is this that they're saying that a lot of these elephants now are being born without tusk. Is that, a, you know, cause they're, they, they're adapting cause somehow they know that they're being killed for their ivory. It's interesting. very interesting. And it's not a conscious adaptation of elephants. They suddenly say, I'm going to have a baby that doesn't have any tusk. This is actually natural selection working uh, in terms of um, what the predator which is the poacher chooses and the poacher chooses elephants with tusks so they start having a much higher mortality and that leaves behind the ones who have a genetic propensity to give birth to tuskless animals so in some places in africa we've seen a transition from a, a population that has lots of tusks to one that has very few and that, that's what you're quoting because that's a study that was done in Mozambique recently, where there'd been one national park, Gonorijou, who was extremely heavily poached. And yes, um, the tuskless ones survived better and they passed on that. But the good news is that actually after time, the tusks start coming back. And that's because that poaching pressure was released. It became viable to be an animal with tusks. And so they started surviving and passing on those genes. So the, the shorter the time, the less the effect will be. That you know, The shorter the time the poaching lasts, the less the effect will be. And so gonorrhea elephants are now um, on the road to recovering their tusks. And the poaching took a major increase. Uh, was it like from late 70s to late 80s, early 90s? And then it, it sort of dropped off or... We've had terrible episodes of poaching. Um, and historically, in Victorian times, there was huge killing of elephants. And then uh, early days in, in early colonial times in uh, East Africa, uh, game laws were established and elephants recovered. And then there was a second huge killing that began in uh, at the end of the 60s when the price of ivory shot up. And that was mainly due to... Um, uh, a very new demand from Japan, where now ordinary people could afford to buy ivory. Now, the Japanese eventually changed their behavior, and so did the Americans and the Europeans. They stopped buying ivory around that time. But then uh, later on, 10 years later, we, we had the first ivory ban in 1989, and that worked very well. And then um, 20 years later, about 2009, 
that all came apart and there was a renewed demand for ivory, this time from China. And uh, that was getting to be very devastating. And even a well-protected area like Samburu, we were seriously worried we were going to lose all the elephants, all, almost all of them. And, uh, you know, ultimately we had to look at everything from sharing our um, knowledge with the Chinese, um, convinced that if people knew what the effect of buying ivory was, they wouldn't want to be responsible for the extermination of a species of animal. And actually that's what happened. The Chinese changed their policy, they changed their practice, and we reached out to them in all sorts of ways, including getting that wonderful um, basketball player, Yao Ming. You know, he's an Olympic hero in China, and he was also quite well known when he played for the Houston Rockets, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right down the road from us. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. so um, you know, he came there and we showed him the elephant, alive and beautiful, and the family structure. And then the next day we took him to see the freshly killed elephants. He was shocked beyond belief. And that was my general, um, very frequent experience of meeting Chinese people and sharing our awareness with them that they didn't want to be responsible. And eventually the Chinese government chose to change the policy. That was in 2015. By 2017, all ivory markets were banned in China. That had a huge and immediate impact on the survival of elephants in Africa, particularly in countries like Kenya, who have been very hard hit. And uh, so, so that things are better in that respect now. Now we're, we're, we're dealing with another problem, which is with human expansion and encroachment into elephant territory, it's a completely new challenge. And we call it a human elephant conflict, and we want to convert it into human elephant coexistence. And again, it's a matter of sharing awareness right through society, whether you're talking to educated people in the cities or rural people, we need to share the wonder of elephants and see if that can change behavior. And you're also using some of this technology, I understand, to track animal, the elephant behavior through these human areas to, to um, help mitigate some of that. Could you share the story about the, that corridor? Um, about the corridor? The corridors that you built and, um, to yes, reroute well, the elephants? You know, one thing about elephants is that they're great wanderers. And we've done a massive study of comparing all the radio tracking data across Africa with colleagues and found that um, actually the majority of elephants live about as much outside protected areas as they do inside protected areas. So these protected areas have been given you know, to wildlife and, and there is a problem there when they go outside because they're very voracious feeders, elephants, as, as are other animals. And, um, and actually it's quite important to lower the conflict and to, to actually encourage this um, love of elephants right down to the grassroots. And uh, th there are reasons why people will. Some group people, for example, um, have a lot of culture of stories about elephants. And then there's the tourist trade, which many people can make a living out of it, uh, in an area which doesn't have many means of 
of, of making money or financial support. So all these things together um, mean that our behavior studies become very important. So we're inviting school children to come visit our research camp. We've got an amazing core of young uh, Kenyan researchers who have spent now uh, some of them decades of work studying elf behavior, and they're the greatest messengers um, to have a kind of new appreciation. Because I said right at the beginning of this podcast, um, the future of elephants depends uh, almost entirely on how human beings feel about them in the long run. And, um, and that, that's going to be key. So it's going to be key to give elephants enough space to plan their corridors. And I think that was your question. What about the corridors? So we do need to plan the corridors, and that needs a detailed knowledge of how much they use corridors, because elephants go from one favored area to another, and there's usually a thin little strip in between that they race down, usually at night, which connects the one area to the other. It's a fairly small area, but um, it's very vital for, the, to, for them if they're going to have a balanced ecosystem where they can get from this area to that area. So we're putting a priority on that. And I'm glad to say that almost everybody in conservation and, and who's interested in the future of, of elephants and other animals now is beginning to understand that there must be corridors. So in Kenya, for example, there's a national policy to um, protect corridors. But of course, that competes with human development in some places. And there have to be compromises made. And I think that the key is that better planning can solve a lot of the problem and provide the corridors, providing it's based on deep knowledge. And that's, again, comes back to the radio traffic. So, yeah, planning has to be based on the evidence. Yeah, so Kenya, the Kenyan government seems to really be on the forefront of this. Um, you know, it's, they, they seem to really be, you know, put, making the wildlife a priority. I guess, you know, they're understanding the, the, the value of, you know, with tourism. And are you part of that working with the government or? I'm, I'm not part of government, no, but of course we but, do. But working with them, you know. No, we do work with them. We work with them, with them on counting elephants, on tracking elephants. We have loads of joint projects with them. And um, I believe that the expertise of scientists, both local and international, is very valuable to get a, a good uh, information and evidence base on which you can uh, base policy. Um, at the moment, I think Kenya is a very uh, favorable country for that sort of collaboration. And I've been here for years now, and I great, get great pleasure in uh, dealing with young people who now are entering the conservation field, who are becoming scientists, and who interact now um, internationally um, across the world, and particularly in my favorite subject, which is elephants and elephant movement and elephant behavior. One of the stories, uh, efforts that you all are, have undertaken that I particularly enjoyed learning about and listening to and reading about, which is kind of the counterpoint to all of this incredible high technology, and that is how you're using bees and the bee fences. 
Um, oh, the big beehive fencing. Could you share how that came about? Because that just seems such a far reach from all of this Google Earth tracking yeah. and all of this. And now the bees uh, are mean, doing their bit. It, it, it's such innovative technology, that. And it's so natural. And we, we have a marvelous setup. But the, the, the idea was first tested by a professor from Oxford, who's the chairman of Save the Elephants. And I worked with him to show that elephants were afraid of bees. That was the first step. But the next steps were undertaken by Dr. Lucy King, also from Oxford, who's built up a wonderful um, research center uh, next to the Sava National Park. And she has experimented with different types of bee hives, fences, where the beehives are linked together with a thin wire. And if an elephant comes at night and touches that wire and the beehive shakes, all the bees come <laughs> rushing out very angry and buzz like anything. And she did a number of experiments to look at what, what was it that really transmitted that fear to the elephant. And she discovered that it was probably the sound of the bees more than anything else. That if you have an infuriated buzzing of bees that comes from shaking their hive, the, the elephants run from that noise alone. And she did a lot of experiments replaying the sound of infuriated bees and observing through binoculars and video exactly what the elephants did. And they would usually sort of freeze when they heard this buzzing and look around, identify the direction the buzzing would come from. And then the matriarch would usually give the, the lead and would start running off and would run silently for about 30 meters away from the bee, hound, bee sound. And then the elephants would start talking amongst each other with rumbles. And so Lucy recorded those rumbles and eventually she <coughs> experiments that replayed what the elephants were saying to each other. And what she found was that when she purely replayed the rumbles, the elephants would run from that too. So she actually then analyzed uh, with colleagues from the Disney, um, you know, Disney Enterprise. They, they were involved in these experiments and they would replay these noises. And um, they actually found that there was a special shape to the sound spectrogram uh, that was uh, typical of these a beehive bee reactions that the elephants made. It was a formant, as they call it. It was a little blip in the sound spectrogram that was specific to elephants responding to bees. So it's a very interesting step. And, you know, we're, we're developing that stuff and trying to find out more about elephant communication, which in itself is a fascinating subject because a, a lot of uh, the frequencies which they transmit information to each other are below human hearing and that um, will carry further distance but it's it's really fascinating an elephant might appear to be silent and actually it's having a, a, a quite a continuous conversation at frequency <laughs> you can't hear remember that rodney next yeah. time they're talking yeah. about you probably. <laughs> so yeah the 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 save save the bees has obviously become a huge <laughs> campaign so you save the elephants and save the bees need a join forces <laughs> you know uh, the, obviously elephants are very important and they're a great symbol and they're a massive animal that has a huge impact ecologically and in relation to people 
But um, they are also a sort of symbol for nature as a whole. And mm -hmm. now, um, you know, we're moving into all sorts of other questions. We want to know what impact climate change is going to have on elephants and, uh, and, and wider aspects of how they, in certain cases, they transmit the seeds of, uh, of plants that rely on very large mammals to disperse them in the forested areas of Africa and Asia. So, I mean, one thing leads to another, and we're certainly not tied into only looking at elephant behaviors, because now we're really interested in human behavior as well, and spreading the message and getting involved in education programs and um, looking at different ways that, uh, that people who share the habitat with the elephants can make a living. All this is coming out, and a lot of it, we've switched the emphasis from looking at um, the effects of poaching for ivory. In, in Kenya, at least, we're now looking more at how to develop um, strategies for human-elephant coexistence. Because, uh, again, to revert back to my early point, uh, the survival of elephants is going to depend on the tolerance of human beings and how human beings look at them, not just from Western countries where there's a huge sympathy for elephants because they're, they're never encountered in real life unless you spend thousands of dollars and come thousands of miles to see them, which is great because that also supports the tourist industry that helps the elephants. But um, no, that sympathy needs to be um, right across the spectrum from um, people who are well off to people who are struggling for existence, sharing their habitat with the elephants. And their uh, tolerance is also needed. So you, you're saying that um, you know, yeah, now there's the, the human element, you know, the human conflict. Um, but where, where is it now with, with poaching? I know things are down a lot, but is, I mean, is it still a significant part of it or is that way down? Because you said that you know, China in, I guess it was 2017, is, you know, they're, they're becoming more aware. Is that still the case or is it still high in China? You know, so far, so good. They, they've delivered what they promised they would do. And they've closed down the domestic markets in China, which were a smokescreen for a big illegal trade. So there is definite, um, you know, there's a whole lot of people in China who really care about elephants now, and I think more than before. And um, we saw some studies that were made, um, you know, sort of um, um, sociological studies to see what people in China thought about elephants. And basically, um, when, when we started, and with our colleagues, um, there was very little known in China ab about wild elephants. People, there were some myths circulating that elephants crop their tusks and you could pick the tusks up and mm -hmm. the elephants mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, you know, there's a, a, there's a lot changed since then. China's opened up a lot more. And there's also a lot of tourists coming to Africa. But uh, in some of the studies that were made, um, people were, were questioned in China, um, you know, what do you feel about this idea of, of not using ivory? And they fell into three groups. There was a group 
who said, oh, I, I don't really care what people say. I'm going to buy ivory. It's precious and I want to have some and it's, it's very valuable, lovely substance and made into beautiful crops. So I'm not interested in your arguments. There was another group who said, yes, we've heard about what's happening to the elephants and we're never going to buy ivory again. And then there was a group in the middle who said, well, look, we know that uh, things are not good for the elephant. We're being told we shouldn't buy it, but we love ivory and we don't quite know, know what to do. So that was the group to concentrate efforts on. And uh, lots of Chinese people who actually were the ones who brought brought this message to the doubters. And I think it did change things at that level. And there was a list of questions. What would change your mind most? Would it be the death of the elephants? Would it be um, scientific interest of elephants? Would it be because the government said that ivory is illegal? And they all said that was the strongest thing that would influence them, if the government made it legal. Really? And, and the government did. So, so that was did. a time, you know, that was a time, we're talking about um, five, five to ten years ago, when relations with China were a lot better than they are now between governments. And at that time, there was a lot of very free discussion. And, um, you know, the Chinese were received in Washington, they were received at Buckingham Palace, and um, always the message that came was quite a sophisticated one. You know, we, the Americans, and you, the Chinese, we are the ones responsible for uh, the elephant because we're the ones who buy the most illegal ivory. Mm. And um, I think that was quite a subtle way of putting it. But anyway, wh wh whatever, the Chinese did decide, to, uh, I think at many different levels, uh, the level of educated people in the cities, um, at the level of people who wanted to obey the government, and uh, you know, the, in, at the leadership level, uh, I think they realized that there was absolutely no benefit to their country from uh, sponsoring the illegal ivory trade. Or with any and so, you know, I mean, all they were doing, there was a lot of criticism from African countries who said, why would you want to kill our elephants? Would, what would you feel if we came and killed your pandas? You know, that kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> it's basically an emotional argument, but one that's very easy to take on. And Africa, of course, is very important to China. So I think that argument, um, held sway. And eventually, the Chinese government just shut off the ivory trade. And I was there in 2016 uh, at the uh, Convention of International Trade and Endangered Species, where these things get discussed in terms of what international rules should, there should be. And traditionally, it was the Americans and Europeans um, who would push for uh, ivory trade bans and then African countries too, but usually um, China and Japan were holding out. Anyway, all that changed. And um, at the last CITES conference which was 20, that I attended, which was 2016, the most vociferous voices in favor of total 
ivory bands everywhere with the Chinese. Really? That's quite a turnaround. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a great study in how you affect so it, it was incredible. Like so yeah, it's, I'd, I couldn't find any information past 2017 on poaching when we were, you know, preparing for this. And I was curious because, you know, when you said that, you know, the U.S. and Japan had eliminated it, and I was wondering what, well, dramatically reduced, yeah. Dramatically was, reduced. Yeah. Oh, well, but I was wondering what the here. what the campaigns were that were yeah. that were working, and it seems to be the same thing here that's over there now with you know just the the celebrity impact. Um, a lot of people in the U.S. cared about it, so for us, there were many people who donated to our campaign um, because they felt a lot of sympathy for the elephant. And what we have always done and continue to do is to monitor, because basically Say the Elephants is a science-based organization where we want to have evidence for the policies we want to encourage and espouse. And um, one of the important things was to count numbers of elephants, which is quite a big undertaking, and you need to do it across a number of populations. So that's been a speciality, counting elephants. Now, another speciality was a new program which was monitoring the illegal killing of elephants. And again, say the elephants was very prominent in this, particularly in Kenya, where we um, were probably the first people to ask local people in a big way, where are the dead elephants? And once they knew they weren't going to be turned in, the, um, the nomadic people who, who have cattle and who work outside the national reserves and national parks, they knew everything that was going on. Because you can imagine um, when an animal dies, it's usually spotted by vultures, and they look and watch the vultures. And these nomadic people are very interested because they have their cattle and their sheep and their goats. And if there's vultures circling, they want to see what it is. So they go and look. And if they find an elephant, then they know. So they became our chief source of information. And we worked with the Kenya Wildlife Service at every quarter to um, pull this information together. So we got a very sensitive indicator of what was happening to the elephants. When we found a carcass or when somebody else found a carcass, we would try to find out what, why that elephant died. And if it had been poached, it was often very obvious. So we use the proportion of dead elephants we found that has been illegally killed as an indicator of the severity of poaching. And this was done internationally across Africa as well through the CITES Treaty. There's a whole program called Monitoring the Illegal Killing of Elephants, otherwise known as Mike. And Mike figures showed that there were great spatial differences, that, that the worst places were in Central Africa, the next worst were East Africa, and then um, certain islands of protection existed where there was a low proportion of illegally killed elephants, and then in Southern Africa it was another story altogether, with Botswana being the one that was the most immune to illegal killing. 
So in Southern Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and Namibia, at that time, had very low levels of poaching. Actually, I'm sorry to say, the levels of poaching have increased, and particularly of rhinos. The horn is so valuable in a rhino that um, some poachers will go to any length to go and kill them and risk their lives and get this rhino horn, kill the rhino, and sell it on the illegal market. And the same for elephants to a lesser extent than the rhinos because the horn, the, the, the ivory is not as valuable as rhino horn. Anyway, the, the, these things were going on and we still do that. So now we, every time there's a carcass seen, we help to coordinate the collection of that information. And once every three months, look at it and look at that ratio, how many of these carcasses were illegally killed. That ratio has gone down enormously. Roughly speaking, if um, you find that 50% or so of the elephant carcasses are illegally killed, you know that population is in severe trouble. And that comes from uh, actually hundreds of different instances that have been uh, correlated and coordinated from this data collection over the years. That is quite a sensitive indicator. Now, of course, in places where no information is collected, you still don't know what's going on. And the other way, of course, we can monitor the elephants is simply by counting them, which is usually done from the air, but that won't work in the forested areas because you can't see them from the air. So uh, these efforts go on and they're done by conservationists, they're done by governments, and um, they work together across the continent. We, we have a wider program across the continent. So Save the Elephants works mainly in Kenya, but we put together a thing called the Elephant Crisis Fund, which was to deal specifically with this excessive killing, excessive trafficking, because serious criminals were involved in the trafficking of ivory. And then, of course, there was a lot of demand. So we tackled things on all those three fronts, together with the whole um, coalition of NGOs, governments, politicians, whoever we could get to serve the cause. And um, it was a very big movement that took place and it was effective. It did um, choke off the demand for ivory and um, it did disrupt the criminal networks and it did lower the killing. I wouldn't say that it's over though. I would I'd be very wary of saying mission accomplished, the battle is over, because I've been around long enough to see waves of killing that take place separated by maybe 10 years. You know, we had it all happen in the early 70s, and then um, that was brought under control by the first ivory trade ban, and that worked for a period, and then it eroded 10 years later. So by 2009, we were back at the height of a crisis again. And so I'm, I'm not saying it's over. But in the meantime, we have another problem, which is the human-elephant conflict that needs to be converted into human-elephant coexistence. And so we're, our program covers all these things, plus the so, need for a lot of education um, locally of children and 
future generation who are going to look after the natural. Well, yeah, world. that's what I was going to say. The yeah, the this younger generation seems to be much more compassionate and understanding, and hopefully that. Or am, am I correct? It, do you see that with you know the yeah, the younger? I mean, you, and you see that too. You see it with climate change that the older generation are much less willing to do to radical change than the young activists who are still in their teens or <laughs> anyway it's it's the way life is so. it was i was i was reading recently the, the you know you mentioned the rhinos i was reading some of the stats on that and just in the past you know <clears throat> with three years it seems like there's been just a dramatic increase in poaching on the rhinos oh what it's is that does that have anything to do with you know with covid with not not as many boots on the well, ground and not people you know with tourism down is that part of it or what's why is well, it so bad all of a sudden it's a very good question we anticipated that there would be a surge in ivory poaching which would coincide with covid covid but it didn't happen not with elephants now with rhinos, it's, it's, it's much more complex. Well, it's not really more complex. It's, there's a much higher motivation for the poacher to go out. And there's parts of Mozambique where whole communities have turned over to industrial level poaching of rhinos and they take huge risks. I mean, I know quite a bit about it, but nothing like what I know about the elephants, but Certainly in the Kruger National Park, which is this great national park in uh, South Africa that's been there for a long time, has been very well run in the past. Um, they've come under huge pressure from um, poachers who've come across the border from Mozambique and now who go all the way looping around to the western side of Kruger. They come in from all sides. And they're very determined, and um, unfortunately for for the rhino, it's very difficult to sustain rhinos in um, wilder places where uh, you know it's a, a wild ecosystem. And now it's, they need more and more law enforcement and protection within areas that are surrounded by high tech fences and sensors and all those things. And in Southern Africa, um, they've developed that kind of conservation a lot. And uh, also in parts of Kenya too. So the, the rhinos in Kenya, I think they've been through the worst and that most of them, I believe, are now um, probably gently increasing their numbers, certainly in the better protected areas. But the range of the rhino has decreased enormously. And where you find rhinos now are in specially protected reserves. You yeah. don't find them out in the wilds. So what, um, you know, obviously you started Save the Elephants, but you are working with uh, Mara Elephant Project. What, what are, have y'all joined forces or what, what is explained that is, is this a different or did you did you help start that too or is this another one y'all teamed up to work together or well we actually started helped start it 
So there were some very generous donors from Indianapolis who um, are also our donors, and they asked us to write the first project document. But there's some superb people working for the Mara Elephant Project, and it's an exciting place because the Mara is the crown jewel of all the wildlife areas in Kenya. And I happen to love Samburu and Sava very much too, but Mara has greater densities and a greater variety of wildlife. And they're an extension of the great Serengeti, which is one of the most important wildlife areas on this earth. So it's a great place to start a project. And the Mara Elephant Project has thrived. So they use all the same technology that we do. In fact, their current head of research, Jake Wall, was with us, I think, for 15 years as um, the chief architect of our radio tracking system. So now he works with them, but we work very closely with them too, because we have a lot of common interests. We make a, a common approach to trying to support the government here um, in its research, uh, its uh, management policies. And again, it's information based. So they're doing a lot of the things that we do. They've uh, recently started individual elephant identification that has you know taken off from where we left off and they do a lot of radio tracking and actually we frequently go down there to swap information sometimes there are people come up to us for training and quite often our uh, researchers go down there for training as well so i would say they're one of our closest colleagues but we also have other ngos that we work with very closely in different elephant areas in Kenya and actually across the continent. Yeah, so then um, this was this, yeah, this last, in fact, that's where I ran into you this last time was in the, in the Mara. And I honestly had avoided it because I had heard of how, you know, how dense the, you know, the tourism was there. There, you know, just you're competing with so many cars or, you know, trucks and, you know, you get into these private conservancies and you're, you're, you're one on one with an animal and you don't have 40 other trucks coming and circling and disturbing these animals. And with since COVID, you know, I'd, tourism was down and I thought this would be the prime time to go to experience tomorrow without, you know, a ton of people. And even in that case, it was still so populated and like, you know, we had a moment with, we had four cheetahs, you know, four, the four, four brothers that were hunting and there were no less than 40 trucks circling these cheetahs. And it felt, you know, I, I, I finally, I just, as the trucks kept coming, I told my guide, I said, let's go, you know, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to, you know, disturb that, you know, what they're doing. But is is there is there anything being done in that regard? I mean, it's it's such a catch twenty two because you need you need the tourism to support you know the the protection and you know the I think the tourism is kind of a eye on the ground too you know to to deter poachers. But if you deter tourism, you know then that allows the you know the poachers back in. Is there a a balance between that to? And it doesn't have to be all one thing or all the other. Mm -hmm. So um, you probably hit the most populated, tourist populated parts of the Mara, uh, because um, I don't know who's guiding you, but um, 
there are ways of avoiding the tourists, like going out at the times that they don't go out. So it's very curious in Sambru, we actually have very little uh, disturbance um, in our work from mm -hmm. tourists, but then we're not working with lambs and cheetahs. And there's no question that the big cats are still the biggest straw. And with elephants, um, I find very often we're going out to places we know the elephants are going to be, and the tourists don't know they're going to be there. And so we have a lot of nice one-on-one -on -one time with the elephants. And occasionally you come across, uh, this is Samburu, occasionally you come across um, uh, a sort of concentration of tourists, and particularly around the lands and the cheetahs. But for elephant, we can pretty much continue to study them. And uh, the, the elephants are not terribly disturbed by the tourists. Now, the positive side is that um, Samburu has been a, uh, a tourist area for many, many years. And the positive side is that the elephants have become much, much more used to human beings. So I love that. The elephants pay you the compliment of ignoring you. Um, or sometimes they don't, you know. Sometimes you get a baby elephant who will come up and mm -hmm. wrap a trunk around your bumper. And sometimes even there is a certain big bull who absolutely loves cars and likes to drape his body across the car, which is quite yeah. <laughs> people. So, yeah, yeah, we, um, tourism, you know, it is a necessary side to to the experience, but you can choose where you go. Um, the more remote the area and the harder it is to get there as a tourist, the more um, undisturbed by tourism it will be, but also the less tame the animals will be. They'll be harder to see. They may quite likely uh, be much more skittish and run away. So, uh, yeah, there's a balance there. And definitely, Samburu's been a place where there have been a lot of tourists and they're probably some of the most habituated elephants in Africa. And for us, that's a joy because we can study their behavior and they pay us the great compliment of ignoring us. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, we did see a lot of, with a lot of the animals and yeah, there were, you know, we, we went to many different areas in the, in the Mara and, uh, and before that, you know, we did, we did old Pajetta and then Amboseli and, but then, um, yeah, there were, there were many spots where we, you know, did have the one-on-one, -on -one, but there just, there are those areas where it's so dense, densely, you know, with tourism that it, it, it seemed like if the animals, uh, you know, like I said, the, the elephants, you know, they're, they're used to you and they don't seem disturbed by you. And that's what was so interesting about with these cheetahs is they did seem to continue on with their normal routine. But it just, it felt, it just felt so invasive. And, you know, with... To see 40 cars around one cheetah, I agree. Mm -hmm. The best thing is to take a guide who can um, organize your tour so you go to the places that the tourists avoid at certain times of day. And uh, you can get a better experience that way. But I know. Can okay, I just come hang out with you? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We hang out with it a lot. We just hang out with them quietly, and the yeah. tourists come and then they go away. And 
but go on recording the behavior and enjoying the elephants. It does sound like with all of these um, different dynamics and with science and the, the social animal behavior that you're studying and the human conflict transitioning to um, coordination with humans, collaboration, um, you do sound somewhat optimistic through all of it. And I was wondering if you could just share your level of optimism with uh with the future as you look at what's been done, what is being I, I think planned. if I wasn't optimist, so I would have given up a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in the time I've been in, in uh, Africa, I've seen huge changes in reduction of wilderness, in many cases, reduction of, of animal numbers. But I've also seen remarkable levels of adaptation of the wildlife continuing to survive and providing us a tolerance from human beings, that can happen. And it's interesting that um, in some places, if you came here in 1900, you wouldn't have seen elephants at all in certain places, including Samburu. Really? Yeah, they've come back since then. Uh, uh, Actually, there were a lot of changes that took place. So there was a terrible ivory trade that took place in the late um, 19th century in East Africa that removed elephants from huge areas. And if you came out, say, in 1910, which was when your president, Teddy Roosevelt, came out, your Mm -hmm. ex-president, he was hard put to find any elephants because they'd mostly been exterminated. And many have come back since that time. So we've been through various ups and downs, you know, where we've had holocausts, where the elephant numbers have been pushed down. And that did happen, as I said, in the early 70s. And then it happened again in the, uh, the first decade of this century. Um, elephants can be quite quickly, they can quite quickly recover if they get protection. If they get protection, they will reproduce, they will increase. And so what we're aiming for now now is a sort of balanced system where um, they can have enough space and enough tolerance to uh, live within protected areas, but also to move between protected areas where necessary. And I think it's still going to be a rare guard action. I think that uh, the number of protected areas will decrease, uh, very likely the number of wildlife may decrease. But uh, I still think there is a good future ahead. Um, If we can share the awareness that we have with the wider public, if there's a strong public support for wildlife in uh, Kenya and other countries, and if again, the rest of the world also cares about what's happening. Because Honestly, that's where most of the money has come from for conservation. That's what the with the elephants. What's what's considered a you know a healthy population? You know, it's as far as you know if if they're if they're constantly you know the, the going up and down in numbers. What's you know if they're you know considered threatened or endangered? It's below a certain number. What's What's a good, healthy... People have tried to produce magic numbers. 
And one of the magic numbers they used to use was one elephant per square mile. That was the right number to have, no more, no less. But thinking has moved on since then. But actually, no wild population is static that way. They naturally go up and down. And um, I, I think the ideal is to have um, a dynamic um, situation. It, I don't think it'll often be in equilibrium where numbers don't change. Uh, but you know, even in your great national parks in the United States of America, uh, animal numbers go up and down in places like Yellowstone. And particularly uh, there, you've had elimination of the wolves and then reintroduction of the wolves. And you've got many of the same problems that uh, the tolerance or intolerance of the human species is actually what's going to determine the future of Yellowstone. I always find it amazing that people living around those ranches don't appreciate the wildlife more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wolves is a is a no, that's all rekindled. It's yeah, a hot number. But anyway, uh, you know, the, we we do have to live with nature, and I think it's become so much wider and more widely appreciated that we've been making a mess of a lot of this beautiful natural world of ours, and now we're getting proof positive in the form of climate change, which is quite frightening to see. But um, yeah, we got to be more aware. And I think, you know, what you're doing with your podcast is important, because you can make people aware, what we're doing in the field and trying to collect the information and get people interested is also important. And then there's the basic tolerance that one needs from the public in general amongst the people who share the land yeah. with the elephants and the other animals. All right. Well, Ian, it's, yeah, I, you, I think you've given us more time than we asked for. Yes. So, <laughs> well, so I, I've, I've got a, I've, I've still got so many questions, but um, we'll, just, we'll have to do this have again. To ask those in person <laughs> yeah. when you're over there and he's your guide. You, you just have to come out again. It's wonderful. Well, I'm... Not without me this time. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> working on that. So Well, we, we not only appreciate your time, we appreciate everything that you and your staff and your researchers and your fabulous young volunteers and what everyone is doing and has done for so many years to make sure we still have these beautiful creatures into the future. So thank well, you very thank much. Well, thank you for that. And um, we appreciate that interest. And we appreciate the great interest of people in America in wild places which may be thousands of miles away because that's important too. And we can't wait to get the word out with, with this podcast to a lot more people, so thank you. And we also, um, as we are saying goodbyes for this particular episode, we want to thank Rupert Neve Designs for their support with some of our wonderful equipment here. We want to thank Donovan Frankenreiter for our intro and our outro music. We also want to thank KWVH, WimberleyValleyRadio.org, our local radio station who rebroadcasts our podcasts every time we have a new one on our local station. And we also want to thank you, our listeners, for taking the time to tune in 
and to enjoy and benefit from these conversations about the power of place, the places that change us and why it matters. And if there was ever a great example of what, what we're trying to do, this is certainly it. So until next time... <laughs>